Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today on the Nurse Surgery Podcast, I am delighted and honored to be joined by a very special guest. And I'm going to let our listeners know that this podcast might run a little bit longer than our typical because there's simply too much to cover and just not enough time. Today's guest is Michael L.J. Apuzo. Dr. Apuzo, I would consider to be my principal mentor. He is a gentleman that has inspired so many young neurosurgeons over the many decades of his career. And, you know, I could read off his CV, which is about 300 pages, but just to give a little bit of an introduction, he's been invited and a visiting professor for over 130 universities, including famed places like the Karolinska. He has over 800 publications, but most of you will probably know Dr. Puzo as the gentleman who principally launched World Neurosurgery and completely revamped the Red Journal Neurosurgery into its current format. Dr. A was a professor at University of Southern California, which is where I first met him. He was a mentor to me when I graduated Stanford Medical School. You've heard me mention his name numerous times on, his, on this podcast. And let me just put in another plug for him. There are too many things to say about him. He was the first neurosurgeon to have a podcast. And I will never forget when he was editor of the Red Journal of Neurosurgery, and he uh, was speaking about the concept of podcasting, and that was before the iPhone. Even. And he was talking about having abstracts and principal literature, key literature being discussed in a in a in a dialogue format, just like we do today, but not just in English, across multiple languages. And that was uh, wow, over 20 years ago that he launched that. And some of you may may still see the relics of that. Um, I think I think his contributions have been so immense. I could go on and on and on, but I'm just wasting time now because I really want to have you hear from him. Dr. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Mike, what a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for kicking it off with the term relic. I think that that may be uh, appropriate in some senses. <laughs> no, no, no. Dr. Ray, your, your relevance continues. And I will tell you that I, I am uh, constantly amazed at how you are able to in, be inspired and creative and bring on new ideas in a neurosurgery. So let me just introduce the title of today's podcast. And you were going to talk about the metamorphosis of the neurosurgeon yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I know that we could talk about almost anything, which would include publishing. Uh, it could include your, your history as a submariner in the Navy during the Cold War. It could be about programmatic development. It could be about sports and neurosurgery because you had a principal role in the NFL. Um, it could be about so many different things. But tell us about this topic and how you came up with this idea. Well, I, I think the, the, world, the word metamorphosis is, uh, is very appropriate, not only for neurosurgery, but I think of life in, in uh, general. Uh, the concept of reinvention uh, is uh, very pertinent to our times. And uh, I think neurosurgery has not only uh, evolved and metamorphosized, but I think the, 
the role and the purpose of the neurosurgeon has uh, metamorphosized and evolved as well. Well, I love you. I love that you say that because, you know, I think about it in the sense that most people do, which is like an amphibian or insect. You metamorphosize from just one stage to the next. But you talk about this reinvention. And I remember you saying when I was a resident, if you don't reinvent yourself every seven years, you you've basically given up. Right. Right. And, and you know, many people ask me about my career and uh, the, the longevity of it and uh, the uh, elements that may be described as being vital by some people, but the reinvention was a, uh, uh, was a uh, effort to try to avoid uh, burnout and avoid boredom. And so this reinvention, I think, uh, demonstrates energy in many fields, uh, energy in people, uh, energy in, uh, in programs, uh, energy in uh, whatever human endeavor that you're, you're really uh, uh, trying to examine. So, Dr. A, thinking about this evolving role of the neurosurgeon writ large through different periods of history and different periods within your own career, why don't we start by looking at today and, in, in your opinion, what, what does it mean to be a neurosurgeon today? Who is the neurosurgeon in 2020? Right. I think uh, when I look at the idea of a neurosurgeon, I think uh, the neurosurgeon uh, in concept, neurosurgery is a concept, and being a neurosurgeon is a concept. And the issue in the purest sense of the word, you know, the neurosurgeon is an individual who's focused on diseases of the nervous system and surgery uh, that relates to the same. But uh, the neurosurgeon of today is very hard to define. And, uh, and the issue, uh, J JP, is that uh, uh, you've got to look at the history of the field of neurosurgery and then the individuals that are involved with it in some sense are defining the history and at the other sense they're being defined by the concatenation of events both internally and externally in the field to make them come forward to fill a need and very much we define the need in one sense but then we're filling a need in another sense and the times define us yeah, Dr. A, I, I'm glad you bring it up like that, because when I'm thinking about this, uh, you, then me, then JP, we're all about 20, 25 years apart, right? So our are, We are. I was thinking about that, and that was, yeah. that was a marvelous thing. And it, it, gave, me, it gave me pause to, uh, to, to ruminate, to think about my career and when it began. And, and I want to say to, uh, as you point out, this is mainly listened to by younger people. And uh, my, my career in neurosurgery, uh, if you want a hard number, uh, basically uh, began to be defined uh, in 1957. So it's a long time. And my active involvement in neurosurgery began uh, as I uh, began to approach my residency uh, or my search for residency in 1963, and then I began my residency uh, at uh, Yale in 1965. So think of the time. Think of the time that that, that really envelops. And all of the younger people 
I would I would encourage you to look back on the history of neurosurgery, uh, just to give you an idea, uh, the way neurosurgery moves. And uh, uh, when I did uh, my first major book, my first major book was called uh, The uh, Surgery of the Third Ventricle. And a little background on it, uh, that book was uh, created to recapitulate Walter Dandy's book from 50 years before. And Walter Dandy did, uh, did a book on interventricular surgery that was uh, a monumental classic, and it was uh, about 150 pages long, and it was a small book, not only in terms of the number of pages, but in the size of it. But it was so chock full of information that was so vital to what was going to govern what was done in neurosurgery for the next several decades that it had it had enormous it had enormous influence both both during that time that it was written and later. Now that book was 150 pages long. When I began to do surgery of the third ventricle, it was based on seven years of experience where I was fundamentally a uh, a uh, a protege of Ted Kersey. There were uh, at that time uh, perhaps a handful of very remarkable individuals who brought the operating microscope into the field of neurosurgery, a monumental thing. So one of the reasons why I went to Los Angeles was to be with Ted, and I spent seven years with him. And at that time, there were no books on, on microsurgery of the brain per se. There were a number of books, very fine books, on techniques of microsurgery in laboratories and operating on rats and doing vessel and, and uh, nervous some type of, uh, of anastomosis. But surgery of the third ventricle was a big breakthrough because it really, for the first time, gave uh, guidelines for uh, doing uh, establishing corridors uh, from any area of the head into the central portion of the brain and through any aperture from the base or from the, or from the uh, that superior uh, uh, cortical surfaces and so on. So yeah, that it's was, like the hardest part to get to, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, right, and it was important, Mike. That was a very, a very, very important. And so that gives you an idea of the way the field changes. Let me give you another. Let me give you another reference in terms of the way the field is um, uh, changing, and that's the number of papers. Uh, I heard your wonderful podcast with uh, Jim Rutka, the, the editor of the Journal of Neuro Neurosurgery. And uh, Jim pointed out that uh, that journal, uh, one of the leading journals uh, in, in the history of neurosurgery, uh, was uh, the, uh, the, number of or the number of manuscripts they receive is about 5,000 per year. And I remember when I took over neurosurgery, which was one of the two major journals in the field, I took it over uh, from uh, Dr. Ed Laws in uh, in 1989, I think that's when my appointment was made, and then I had to spend a sort of an apprentice time with him before I formally was announced as editor. We were getting uh, about 600 manuscripts. Uh, by the time that I gave that journal up, I gave that journal up uh, uh, about 20 years later. At that time, we were getting uh, close to 5,000 manuscripts. 
Wow. So, Dr. A, let me stop you there. I want to I want to bring this to our audience because many of the listeners are young. They don't understand the time when putting the, I mean, we've had residents on this podcast who've edited books. That was unheard of. It was a very different time for computers, right. for printing, the costs and all that. And, and I just want to throw in one quick story about this, that when I was going through the match, we just came out of the match. I ranked USC number one, and the seminal part of that coming out of Stanford was I'll never forget going into the basement of the Keck building, and Rod Faccio was there, and John Diaz Day, who's now chair at Arkansas, was the chief resident, and I was a sub-op. And J.D. Day took me into the basement. He showed me with Rod. He goes, look what I'm putting together. I'm putting together an atlas with the late Wolfgang Kuss, the first skull base atlas in the world and you had set him up to do that and he was a chief resident and i said to myself what is going on here at usc nobody in the world is doing this as a resident and it, it would be it would be absolutely mind-blowing and so i said wow i've got to come study at usc to see what they're doing differently it would be like someone coming out of residency with a thousand publications now i mean it, it, things have changed by scale so much so i'm glad you bring that up doctor and sorry to interrupt you there please continue well i think i think what that what that does is uh it highlights the fact that uh uh, for the younger people uh, in neurosurgery, we are very much products of our environment. And uh, and uh, I was brought up in neurosurgery, and uh, you know, the time that I, uh, my my training period, a formal, formal training period, and I, I want to say that uh, uh, my formal my training period in neurosurgery uh, was from uh, about 1965 until uh, 1973. That was my formal training period. Uh, I also uh, had uh, this, uh, if you would, it was uh, a type of a, not a fellowship, but almost like an apprenticeship with Ted Kersey for seven years after I finished my training, but also interspersed. I had a fellowship and my fellowship was uh, in the uh, nuclear submarine force of the United States Navy. And that was a period that was extremely influential for me because it introduced me to what was uh, uh, high tech that was maybe 30 years ahead of what the public could see. And uh, that was extremely influential in my thinking and how I approached uh, the field of neurosurgery uh, when I returned uh, to be, uh, be a young staff man uh, in Los Angeles and gave me entry to uh, NASA through uh, JPL and the, uh, the Viking Project for the first Mars landing. So I did not have what would be considered a normal training or background in neurosurgery. But, uh, but given those issues, I would, like to, I would also like to say that being at Yale, uh, Yale was, of course, uh, the place where the Journal of Neurosurgery was founded. And the first editor of the Journal of Neurosurgery was Dr. Eisenhardt, who was uh, Harvey Cushing's uh, pathologist. And Dr. Eisenhardt was my patient when I was a resident, oddly enough. And, wow. and Dr. Eisenhardt and I would talk about the founding of the Journal of Neurosurgery and so on. And then I was, I was privileged to have, have Bill Collins was my chairman when I was a young staff man and uh, in Los Angeles with Ted Kersey that uh, Bill Collins was my mentor. He continued to be my mentor as an editor. 
and he introduced me to Dr. Henry Schwartz, who at the time was the editor of, of Journal of Neurosurgery, and um, later introduced me to Thor Sunt and so on. And I had the opportunity to become close to Bob Wilkins, who was the founder of uh, neurosurgery. So the concatenation of all of these moments, all of these moments, all of these, uh, if you would, mentors, uh, made me uh, the right person at the right time. And believe me, I didn't even know it uh, to take over uh, the editorship of uh, neurosurgery. So, so for the young people, uh, the lesson is to be active, be inquisitive, be uh, uh, take care, take advantage of any opportunity that you might have, because you never know what opportunities will present down the line. That these opportunities will be a foundation for being able to approach uh, in a very meaningful and powerful way. Now, of course, I mean, as someone at the start of my own career, I, I can't help but take that advice to heart. Um, however, Dr. A, I would be remiss as the host of a show if I let you just gloss over working on nuclear submarines like that. Um, but, but maybe to contextualize it with today's discussion, um, maybe if you could talk more about coming back to neurosurgery from that world. You talked about seeing technology decades ahead of the rest of the country. Maybe talk about what the surgical technology was like as you started out in your career compared to the kinds of things um, on the, the Vista for myself starting to learn now, both navigation technology, instrumentation systems, endovascular technology. You know, it's, it's, it's begun to define the field in a way. So give our listeners a perspective on, on what you had available when you started out. Very astute and an excellent question and a really an excellent question. Uh, that opens up so many doors for me uh, because uh, just uh, to uh, uh, to uh, to strike a chord uh, uh, with me is uh, the moments uh, in the history of neurosurgery that were impacted upon by an instrument or impacted upon by some some technology making its way into the field. Now, uh, when I began my neurosurgery uh, career, uh, obviously there was no imaging. There were retrograde brachial angiograms with uh, a Selinger needle uh, 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 introduction of dye into the uh, brachial artery and uh, carotid angiograms. Uh, there were air studies uh, by either ventriculostomy or by air being introduced into subarachnoid space in the spine. There were panopic myelograms, all of which gave us a very hazy idea, particularly uh, in the intracranial space, about what we were dealing with. Uh, the uh, doing a uh, doing any craniotomy uh, was a uh, was very much a uh, uh, it was a very much a, a sort of an adventure, and uh, the type of people that wanted to do neurosurgery. Uh, were a special breed at the time. They were a special breed at the time. And uh, they uh, were romantics, uh, very much like the uh, current people, um, uh, most of us, and even the young people. That's a chord that struck for me for the past 60 years that I've been had any involvement with neurosurgery. Most of us are romantic in a sense. 
but uh, there was a there was a different type of attitude of the folks that went into neurosurgery uh, uh, during uh, the entry of uh, of of my life uh, uh, into the uh, into the field, and it required that because the results were bad uh, in, in general. Uh, we were very timid in terms of what we can do and what we could do. And uh, so uh, when I left to go into the service, uh, and then it was, uh, it was a, it, overall about a four period of time, I, I was uh, based out of uh, Groton in New London, which was about 50 miles away from Yale. So when we, when, when we were in port, I had the opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to be at Yale and to keep my finger on the pulse as to what was going on. But uh, when I uh, returned uh, from the service, the major change, the major change was there was an operating microscope, an OPMI-1 microscope sitting in the OR. And when I returned, uh, that was uh, in uh, about 1969, the operating microscope was just beginning to be very much a figment of imagination uh, throughout the country in leading neurosurgical centers. Uh, but there were only a few that had brought it into a, a practical and a prag pragmatic element into the armamentarium. So that was a, an enormous breaking point in terms of be, uh, coming out of the dark ages in terms of what we could do in neurosurgery. Now, simultaneously, there was a publication that originally occurred in Lancet uh, uh, earlier, but began to creep into the neurosurgical practice, and that was the introduction of dexamethasone. And that was a huge breakthrough in terms of what we could do in terms of, in terms of operating in the head or, or in brain surgery. That was enormous. And then followed by that, in 1973, the real breakpoint took place just as I was finishing, and I had the opportunity to go uh, to uh, work with uh, Bill Sweet. Uh, Bill Collins sent me up to the Mass General to work with Bill Sweet uh, on uh, a, a pericutaneous tick operation uh, that Bill was doing. We were doing it in the neuroradiology department of the General. And there was a lot of noise going on, and Bill was quite upset that it was disrupting his, his uh, tranquility there. And uh, he was saying, they're putting this piece of junk in down the hall, and they're disturbing my piece while I'm trying to do these surgeries. And that piece of junk was the first EMI scanner going in in North America in 1973. Wow. That, that was a breaking point that was so enormous in terms of our ability to orient to have some element of substance or foundation to planning operative events, to have a concept of what we were doing. And that was an enormous change. It took place just as I was coming out of the, uh, coming out of the operate, uh, just as I was coming out of the uh, uh, training. And when I went on to go to, uh, to Los Angeles uh, to work with Dr. Kersey at uh, the General Hospital of Los Angeles, within a year and a half, I had a CT scanner that was virtually on the fifth floor of the General Hospital. Mike, and you know where it was. You know in that room is where, uh, where Dr. Weiss's office was. But that room and the residence room, was, were, there was a, a CT scanner in there that really 
turned my life upside down in terms of what I could think about and dream about in terms of what what we could do in neurosurgery in terms of beginning to move the field forward. Wow, that's that's incredible. It brings back so many memories. I always wondered what why the uh, residence room looked like a radiology suite, but it's really <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So so going back though to what JP was saying, so that was then, and then how about now? I mean, this is such an interesting time, um, you know, with with what's happening in America today, all the different right. elements politics and the, the finances and administration right. you know, in the hospitals, and the, right. the, the burst of technology with the brain mapping and all this. What, what is the neurosurgeon, as JP was saying, what right. is the neurosurgeon of today? Well, let me tell you, let me tell you this. Uh, the way that I see it is that uh, what we've seen in neurosurgery has been a, uh, a, uh, a progression uh, that has created what uh, what modernism is in the field, and that is, from the standpoint of when I come in, came in, there has been progressive specialization. There has been progressive introduction of of, uh, of, of high tech into the field, and as the specialization has taken taken place, uh, the field of neurosurgery has become fr- fragmented to the point where the the specialization is so unique that it's hard for us to reach each other. It's hard for us. And uh, what I see, as you know, Mike, you've heard me t- talk about this. We're going to have we're going to have breakdown uh, within the field of neurosurgery that there's going to become some, uh, some, if you would, uh, uh, a uh, an amalgamation of groups. And, you know, we're trying to hold it uh, as one specialty, as neurosurgery. But as you know, spinal surgery is so different than operating on the head. And each neurosurgical specialty, the vascular surgery, the tumor work, the, uh, the functional stereotactic, and the pediatric neurosurgery, right? And, uh, and uh, fundamentally, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the major areas of neurosurgery have become so specialized, it's very hard to follow what each one of us are doing. The issue of trauma, the issue of now of rehab, the issue of what restoration means, and so on. So what, what, what I see, Mike and, and JP, is that I, we talked about this issue of there being a, a reorganization of what specialties are and what, who the neurosurgeons are, even as we're coming into a new era in neurosurgery, and, uh, as I see it. But let me, let me say, say this. I do think that spine has, when I began spine, there were like three or four operations. Look at the number of operations you have. Look at how complex they are. Look at how elegant they are. Look at what you have the capability of doing, how you employ high tech, how you employ imaging, how you employ robotics, uh, how that's done. This is absolutely a, you know, a separate specialty from neurosurgery. Okay, it's, it's a separate specialty. It's a neurosurgical area. I'm not saying you shouldn't do at least part of your training in neurosurgery, but I think the spinal surgeon should be spinal surgeons, some of which may be trained essentially initially in neurosurgery or initially in orthopedic surgery. But I think the spine has earned its right 
to be a, to be a, a separate specialty. Now the other the now one other thing that I, I would throw out is look at what's happened in vascular. Vascular. I told uh, I told uh, Steve Giannata, and this was back uh, in the uh, uh, early '80s when uh, I asked him to do a, a talk at a meeting that I was chairing on a requiem for conventional cerebrovascular surgery, and he was stunned because he was just beginning a career in cerebrovascular surgery. But look at during during Steve's career, what's happened? Re- uh, Cerebrovascular surgery is completely turned upside down with endovascular surgery. And, and now, so cerebrovascular surgery is where it is now. It's, it's totally different than what it was where it was 30 years ago. Look at, uh, look at, the, look at the, the treatment of trauma and intensive care. That deserves, deserves a special, have to be a special area that may be, in fact, a maybe it's its own discipline with uh, its own boards and so on and so forth and a pathway that could be uh, fundamentally through neurosurgery and have rehab folded in, in into that look at what's happening with tumors look at how tumors are treated now the the the, the need and the true need to do craniotomies is is moving into the past and look at the areas that are that are really impacted upon it all the genetic studies, all the work with immunology at this point, all the definition of the of, of the molecular structures that are associated with neoplasms are being studied to the point where the treatment very quickly is going to be met is going to be medicine, or and or these high energy forms that we're using with photons or or gamma rays, or uh, or, or other types of uh, high energy. Uh, areas of lasers or uh, ultrasound at this point in time. So, so tumors, uh, although there's some, there's, there's work to some elegant work being done with cranial base with endoscopes and so on, but that's only a temporary, that's only sort of a temporary period. That's going to go. So neurosurgery is going to be quite different. And I think that as we move into the future, that uh, we're going to, we're going to see uh, a quite quite a different picture in terms of what the field of neurosurgery is as compared to where it was in the past and where it is now. And I think all of you have to do is look at history, look at the way it was in 1903 when Harvey Cushing wrote his, uh, wrote his definition of a new field of neurosurgery, appeared in the Johns Hopkins uh, bulletin and, and in 1905, he, he gave a talk in Cleveland in 1903 where he described that modern neurosurgery began. Then, look at where it was when I began. Look at how the subspecialization has happened, and uh, you have to. It's it's so obvious that things where you look you look to 2050, say, you look to 2050. You look at the young people coming in now. They're going to have a they're going to have a, a period of 30 years where there's a metamorphosis taking place, but it's explosive. The way science is going, the way information is being sort of collected at this point in time, uh, things are going to be quite different in 30 years. And uh, my advice has always been to the young people, keep one foot in the present and one foot in the future and be, and be flexible, be ready to metamorphosize. It's fun. I think it's great. It keeps you vital. And uh, it'll be the same thing in spine, Mike. We've often talked, haven't we, about where is spine going? 
you know, what's going to be taking place in terms of uh, biomedical engineering and how that's going to be applied to the spine or to other areas of neurosurgery. So what I'm saying now is, is clearly defined in all my paper. I mean, I have so many papers and editorials written on this, on this very topic that we're talking about now, but think about it. You know, think about genomics, think about molecular biology, think about where imagery is going, biomedical engineering, computer science, endoscopy, the ideas of restoration, nanotechnology, how it's going to be, how it's going to be applied, modulation, and, uh, and functional neurosurgery, to me, is, uh, is going to be, it's just going to explode uh, over the next, uh, over the next uh, the, the two, uh, two or three de- de- decades. Well, Dr. A, kind of to wrap things up, to respect your time, we know that you're very busy. Um, Looking as we are right now at the tomorrow of neurosurgery, maybe to focus more on the people in the field, since we've discussed extensively how the field itself is changing and the technology. Right. What do you think that all of these changes and shifts in the subspecializations will do to the people drawn into the field? Do Do you think that romanticism that you talked about before will carry through for the neurosurgeons of tomorrow? Or do you think that these increasingly fractionated disciplines within the field will start attracting increasingly fractionated personalities? No, I think, I think that, I think that the idea of, of uh, being involved with understanding treating disorders and uh, being uh, immersed in neuroscience, what what more exciting field is there in medicine now than than neuroscience? And we're all part of it in one way or another at this point. Uh, whether whether you're in spine, I mean, you're involved in neuroscience, you're involved in high science. Uh, think of uh, Mike uh, uh, talking about uh, what's going to be taking place with introduction of uh, of uh, of the elements of bio biochemistry and genetics and biomedical engineering in terms of what you do, how imaging is going to impact about what you're going to do. I mean, I like the ideas of introducing uh, this, uh, the idea of uh, virtual surgeries and rehearsal of surgeries. Uh, and I think it will be, become part of the medical record that we'll have to do any surgeries you do, whether it's in the spine or on the head, you'll have to show a, uh, that you comprehend what you're going to do, how you do it, it's valid as part of the medical record. Uh, there's so many exciting areas that have romance in them, in every field, in this metamorphosis that's taking place. But uh, what I do think, how things are going to be different, is that uh, the role of, uh, of, of, of scientists, neurosurgeons, and uh, the uh, uh, Hockfield, the former... Uh, uh, president of uh, MIT, uh, Hockfield had an editorial, uh, I think, happy to say, uh, a month after I had my ed- editorial in neurosurgery, talking about where are the future surgeons and leaders in medicine uh, to establish the cutting edge are going to, where are they going to come from? And they're going to come from technical schools, and they're going to be more PhDs. They're going to be more PhDs in areas of science that are applicable to what the challenges are in the field of uh, neurological disorders. There will be neurosurgeons, and they'll just be different. 
and they'll have a different, they'll, they, you know, they'll, they're going to put the knife down. <laughs> the knife is going to be put down and, and they're going to be, they're going to be surgeons who work with uh, minimally invasive methods like, like Mike and, uh, and Rick Fetzler are working on. They're going to work with uh, perhaps radiation beams or uh, with, uh, uh, with bio, with bio constructs or with, stem cells or with all these wonderful buzzwords that we know that have come to the forefront during our time. So I think it's an exciting time. I think it's, I think the romance is greater than ever. I think it's the best field. If I were doing medicine again, there's no question about what I would do. And uh, I think the role of the neurosurgeon is going to be refined It's and it's going to be defined and it's going to be more compartmentalized, and uh, I think it's going to be uh, more uh, uh, more fruitful in terms of getting the kind of results that as we try to as we try to proceed for perfection for our patients and how we treat them and for how we minimize hospital stays or or, 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 or sort of eliminate hospital stays and how we uh, move into the future uh, with gusto so it's an exciting time, more than ever. Well, I'm reassured. I share your optimism about carrying the romantic spirit, the hero spirit, the explorer spirit forward in neurosurgery in the coming decades. Um, so quickly, before we have to let you go, um, looking back again, do you think you could share with us a, a fun or interesting story or memory you have about Dr. Wang back in residency? I know. I've got it. I've got one. I've had one always ready. I'm ready on the tip of my tongue. Uh, when, when I was, uh, when I was at, when I had my wonderful uh, uh, honor of being at USC for 42 years, uh, we had a, we had a parade. Most of the time, there were three residents or two, so there were there were many many residents that came through, and certainly Dr. Wang was. You know, absolutely. He and his co-resident, I have to mention Charles' name. You know that, Mike. So uh, two residents uh, came through. One was Charles Liu and one was Mike Wang. And uh, and I was traveling a lot and I, I missed I, I, I missed a lot of discussions about the residents. And I didn't always see all of them during the course of uh, the uh, uh, the clerkship periods or sub-I periods. Uh, and uh, and when they came uh, into the program, the program was busy, and uh, I uh, would usually wait until they were five, six, and seven to become involved with them because uh, I felt that uh, that the the more junior faculty were best suited to uh, get them to that point, and I sort of stayed in, in the off, uh, you, know, you know, away from them. So, uh, but. Uh, uh, one of my days when I was doing surgery, and uh, I, I was in the OR, I was at the head, I was, I was at two residents, the residents on either side in those days, and so on, and I was intimately involved with this case, and I'm standing there, and somebody gives me a body check from the side, and, and I, I couldn't believe what happened. I, I look over, and I see these eyes that I know so well know, these sort of like twinkling and laughing and sort of jubilant eyes that just, you know, you know, just charmed the life out of you. And that was my introduction to Mike Wang. 
That was Mike Wang, the sub-I, coming into, coming into the OR to a, a, a senior professor at the time, making his presence felt to get attention to introduce himself. <laughs> so that was my introduce, that was my introduction to Mike and Charles, his, his cohort who, the, I mean, the two of them were, uh, were uh, so charismatic and so extraordinary that they captivated this whole uh, uh, 25 bed medical, 2500 bed medical center and were the celebrity, total celebrities, the two of them. And uh, the faculty fell into the distance uh, <laughs> with them. So it was a joy, Mike, and I'm so proud of what you've done since then. And thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure, as you can tell. You hear it. Well, Dr. A, if we could talk about anything, as I said, architecture, music, sports. And, um, you know, I, I hope that through the podcast, some of the younger folks will get to know you. And I want to thank you on behalf of a generation of my generation of neurosurgeons inspiring us to publish, to reach for the stars, to try to think about the future and not, as you've always said, the surgery as we do it today is, is not what's going to be the future. And, and there's so much hope and, and you remain young at, at heart in that way. So thank you for your time. We definitely have to have you back on. I hope that JP's generation will get to know you well, not only through the podcast. I know that you're still very active at Cornell, um, inspiring young folks to residents and medical students. And, and it's just amazing your energy level. So thank you again and uh, good luck and God bless. God bless you both.